there's no substitute for experience. That's really all there is to it. I work with Plato now as a, a mentor. And I think one of the things I, we wrote up, I was working with one of their, their teams to write up just, uh, you know, something that occurred to me recently. And it's really thinking about, okay, what are you uniquely good at? And what do you uniquely enjoy? And how can you use those to contribute to the company? And if that means that maybe, you know, managerial ship is not your jam, go find somebody whose it is. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you might soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. If you want to keep the best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. And even better, Remote helps you rest easy by providing you the most comprehensive intellectual property protection and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered regions, guaranteeing you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything Remote offers from payroll to compliance and to benefits management for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employees onboarded during their first year. You can get 50% off Remote's full suite of global employment solutions for your first employee for three months. Just visit remote.com slash leaders and use the promo code leaders. Welcome back to Leaders of B2B. Today, I'm joined by the CTO and co-founder at Gremlin, the world's first enterprise chaos engineering platform. Gremlin provides engineers with a framework to safely, securely, and easily simulate real outages with an ever-growing library of attacks, turning failure into resilience with chaos engineering. Matthew Fornaseri, welcome to Leaders of B2B. Thank you very much for having me, Noah. I'm glad to be here and glad to have the opportunity to chat with you. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Now, Matthew goes by Forney, a derivative of his very Italian last name, Fornaseri. So I'll address you as that going forward. So Forney, chaos engineering, that's kind of a key word with regard to Gremlin and the great work you're doing there. For listeners not entirely familiar with that concept, could you kind of introduce it to us? You know, how would you define chaos engineering? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, great question. It can be a little bit of a misnomer at times. People think, oh, chaos, I don't want more of that, do I? Why would I ever do this? But chaos engineering is actually the practice of injecting controlled chaos into your systems. So it's the idea that you have a hypothesis about how your system would react under duress, under you know specific 
poor conditions and you essentially you want to go out there and test it proactively. You want to say, hey, I think this is how my system will behave when X, Y, and Z go wrong. So I'm going to go inject a little bit of controlled chaos and see if that's actually the case. It's actually really scientific. You know, we, we ask our customers to come up with a hypothesis, come up with a way of actually going about, you know, testing that hypothesis, having observations, results, and going from there. So a little bit of a misnomer. Great question. Yeah, no, that that's super informative. So, um, you know, tell us about kind of your ideal customer and the companies that you help. Who is Gremlin? Yeah, absolutely. And look, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I think Gremlin is for absolutely everyone. I think chaos engineering is, you know, the next step in terms of building reliable systems. And especially given, you know, the pandemic over the past couple of years and the huge acceleration of digital transformation, just about anyone can benefit from this. But, you know, there is a there's a cultural aspect of picking up chaos engineering and really investing in reliability. You need to have some buy in. And I think really our our primary customers are the ones that actually care a lot about reliability, that count their downtime, that have, you know, some set of criteria that they're measuring KPIs, SLOs, SLAs. You know, they have buy in from directors, you know, director level and up even. Uh, Funny enough, we even had, you know, a set of qualifying questions way back in the day that was, do you measure this? Is there a dollar amount associated with reliability? Who's responsible for it? Uh, Just to make sure that we were talking to the right folks. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Well, tell us about kind of your journey to Gremlin. I mean, chaos engineering, that's not necessarily something that the stereotypical, you know, person, you know, when they're, you know, <laughs> when they're a teenager, they dream about going into that field. But, but Forney, you, were you that, were you that kid? Oh yeah. I've been dreaming about chaos since the day I was born. You know, <laughs> no, I, uh, <clears throat> I was very fortunate. I got to start my career off at Amazon. I worked on a team called the availability team and, you know, believe it or not, the practice of chaos engineering has, you know, long been practiced just in different ways, shapes and forms. Uh, You know, back when I joined Amazon, there was actually a guy, you know, Jesse Robbins, the master of disaster, as he was so called, that used to run through data centers and just pull cables out of the wall. Uh, And we were tasked with building a software solution for doing that because it's a little hard to undo when you just pull something out of the wall. So, you know, being able to do this in a very safe way, like you mentioned earlier, you know, after a couple of years working on that at Amazon, I actually got moved over to a sister team, the Fatals team, which tracks any, you know, anytime you say you see a we're sorry on Amazon, that was my job to track that and then write a weekly email to Jeff Bezos. So at the uh, the ripe age of 22, I had a lot of high visibility there, but it really ingrained this idea of reliable, reliability and building a I mean, building a customer obsessed uh, experience and making sure that you're you're really feeling that pain up front. So, did that all kind of as, at the start of my career, and since then I've, I've kind of dragged it along through everything I've done, including the past six years at Gremlin. So wow. So while you were, you know, was this an idea that was engendered while you were at Amazon, you know, to start Gremlin? I don't know if we knew we were going to start Gremlin per se, me and my co-founder, but we definitely knew that there was something really special here, that this was a way to go out and get ahead of failures before they actually impact customers. And Amazon is amazing in terms of how they're able to forecast, you know, dollars lost on minutes of downtime. You know, we knew exactly how much money we were losing based on how long we were at down. You know, this this idea actually translated really well when when we had the opportunity to actually start a company around it. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about some of the highlights of your your time at Amazon. So you were working there at age 22, which is insane. 
you know, it sounds like you were something of a, you know, a, a prolific, a prolific youth to, to land a job at a company like that. Um, so tell us about that experience a little bit, you know, you're, you're dealing it's fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, I'm, uh, I, I'll be humble here. Prolific youth, no. Lucky guy, sure. And then you know, I just threw <laughs> myself go. into the work. But yeah, I mean, like I said, it, it was a lot of luck and uh, opportunity to be placed on that team. I worked with some really, really intelligent people. Uh, you know, we we really focused on the four golden signals, which are latency, error rate, availability, and uh, saturation. I always forget the last one, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Those were what our sister teams all worked on. And, and that's, you know, what ended up laying the bedrock for a lot of what site reliability engineering is focused around. So I was able to, to kind of get in there. And at the time that I joined Amazon, there was no team focused on air rate. We didn't, you know, we kind of measured it, but didn't really. Um, and so I was very fortunate to be given a team and or given less a team and more so like a mandate to go write a weekly email about all the stuff that broke so we could make it better. And really just sunk my teeth into that problem set and got to learn a whole hell of a lot. Unfortunately, I, I cut all the tickets with my face on it. So a lot of people knew me at Amazon, but they were not particularly fond of me. If, they're, uh, if their teams broke anything, they would get a, you know, get a ticket from me. So, yeah. 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 Oh, that's awesome. So, you know, you left Amazon, of course. Did you then start Gremlin right away? Were there some other experiences that led up to that? Tell us about kind of that journey, the road to Gremlin. So after after Amazon, I decided, you know, I, I was born in L.A. I was born in the or I was born in the Bay Area. I grew up in L.A. Needed to get back to some sunshine. Decided that, uh, you know, if I were to leave Seattle, leave Amazon, I would look for a company in the Bay Area. And I so happened to land at Salesforce, uh, which amazing company. I was, again, very fortunate to land on a team called the Contacts Team. So if any of you have used Salesforce, uh, I was responsible for a lot of the, the workflow around the contacts and then eventually went over to Record Experience, which actually is the, the framework that loads every single record in Salesforce. So again, very high visibility work uh, for better or worse. I've even, I've had a couple of people tell me that the, some of the workflows I've worked on are not uh, not quite up to par, but you know, I worked on a lot of durability, which is kind of a, a sister of, you know, reliability and being able to preserve data even in offline modes and those sort of things. So I worked there for about two and a half years, really, really loved the experience. But, you know, when opportunity comes calling, you need to be you need to be ready to answer. And when when we had the opportunity to start Gremlin, I had to jump in both feet. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Was it, you know, what was kind of like that shift from going from, you know, an employee to the founder of a company? I mean, you know, for you, was it all about, it's a big question, but for you, was it all about, you know, the skill sets and things you had learned at Salesforce and Amazon, and then just doing that in your own way and possibly, uh, you know, a bigger way. Yeah. I mean, it's being an IC working at a, you know, a big company like that is absolutely nothing like being a founder. I think uh, when we decided to start the company six years ago, I think my, my claim to fame was like, oh, all right, beautiful code. And uh, as it turns out, you know, I just we we had an all hands just a couple couple weeks ago because we reached our six year uh, anniversary of our incorporation date. Oh boy, was that a naive statement? There is so much more to building a company and building a culture than just building a product. It was it was a major gear shift. You know, obviously building out the first product, being able to to actually have something to sell. There's a lot of late nights. I think I was pulling 16-hour days pretty regularly. I think if you asked my roommates in San Francisco at the time, they barely saw me. But uh, yeah, it's it, it was a complete and total gear shift. You know, it's no pun intended, considering me and my co-founder rode around Silicon Valley and 
on you know motorcycles trying to sell chaos to people but uh it was it was a completely different situation different skill set and uh, i'm very very grateful to have had the opportunity to learn those so what advice would you give to tech founders who are tuning in who know that they have a solid product and maybe they just launched their company maybe they're looking to do more they re- received more funding you know what advice in terms of like from founder to founder would you give them yeah, that's a great question. And and I've got no shortage, but I know we've got a time limit here. So maybe I'll try to be uh maybe I'll try to be brief. Honestly, I I think I for technical founders in particular, I'd give the advice like learn the business. Don't don't neglect that side of the company. That's not something that you can do. Uh if you want to be successful, it it oftentimes ends up fostering uh, you know, like just a misunderstanding between the sales side of the house, the go-to-market side of the house, and the engineering R&D side. And really, you're all on the same team. You all succeed or you fail together. So try to learn as much as you can. I mean, at one point, I think I had all of my engineers having weekly coffees with all of our like salespeople because I wanted them to understand what, you know, what was going on, uh, you know, sit in with customers, that sort of thing. So you have to you have to start from the customer and work backwards. You don't have a great product until the customer has told you you have got a great product. And they usually do that with dollars. So that's piece number one. And if I can just do a quick number two is just ask so many people for help. Ask them for you know, run things by them. Don't be hesitant to reach out to people. I mean, the worst you can get is a, you know, I, I don't have time right now or I, you know, I don't, I don't know much about that. I can't help you. This is, it's untrod ground. And no matter how much you read about it, you know, you're not going to get, you're not going to have the experience that I think you can garner from reaching out to your network, building a network, being able to reach out to those people and run situations by them. You're going to have a lot of unknowns and de-risking those and and uh, figuring those out. It requires a lot of help. So don't be afraid to ask. No, that's solid. Well, one of the things that you hit on there, Forney, that I think a lot of tech companies struggle with is, you know, alignment internally between respective departments, whether that's, you know, product people and the sales team or, you know, engineer people in the sales team. So, you know, tell us more about that. I love that you have them, you know, have weekly coffees with one another. How have you been able to curate that sense of that sense of team and unity? Yeah, it's a great question. And especially in a world where we're all remote now, that gets even harder. I think, you know, we we started off remote because, I mean, small startup, you don't have offices. But we eventually even had like a San Francisco and a San Jose office because we had different people, you know, we had teams at both sides of the tracks. And even that you could see there was like a disconnect sometimes. You know, I think writing things down is really helpful, recording them for posterity. You know, one of the things I think it's, I'm not sure. I think it's from one of Horowitz's books, but it's like the the advice that, you know, by the time you're sick of saying something is finally when people start to hear it. You know, I think there's a, a really, there's a proclivity towards just like, I said it once I'm done. And that's just not the case, especially when you're growing, you're hiring, you need to be able to keep, keep repeating, keep reiterating what, what the company is trying to do and not just what sales is trying to do, what customer success is trying to do, what engineering is trying to do. Because if you have a, I mean, you can move quickly, but if you're moving kind of in different directions, you may not be moving in the, you know, moving the company overall. So it's, I think it's kind of a cop-out answer, but I think it's largely dependent on how your organization operates and how, how information is best disseminated. You know, I think a focus on fun events sometimes and just building some of that is definitely important and it's hard especially these days getting folks together in person uh that sort of thing but 
goal setting, OKRs, all of those answers, sure, great as well. But you know, when you're small, that's that's a little less important than than building that that human connection. You know. Yeah, and and you know, company culture is something that is uh, super difficult to foster in a remote environment. I'm sure, as you well know, and you know, there's no shortage of of talking heads. You know, promoting which I love. You know, the importance of company culture, but just in terms of like you know, the ability to please customers. Have you found that it is absolutely essential to meeting those goals? When you say meeting those goals, do you mean setting up culture or do you, what, what do you mean exactly? By yeah. That? Yeah. Yeah. Like, have you found that company culture, and this is a, a almost like a, um, what's the word? Like a, you know, ha- have you found that you're, you know, creating and curating good company culture, you know, dr- dramatically affects the customer experience? Well, our number one priority, our number one core value is customer focus. So, yep, I do think so. I think, you know, it's really dependence on, I think, making sure the customer comes first, that there is a customer focus, a customer obsession is obviously something we took away from Amazon, but is especially prevalent these days. You know, there's there's a lot higher expectations for customer service and for making sure that you're making your customers successful. And I think ingraining that into the culture one way or another early on uh, makes sense. The the later you you know the longer you take to to realize that and, and, and ingrain it in your your early ten or whatever wherever whatever stage you're at, the harder it's going to be. You know, one of the first I actually wrote up our first draft of our you know our core values and those have been referenced time and time again you know, down the road in terms of like, well, this is something we really value. So, you know, this is something we should, you know, we should put the customer first, we should be frugal here, so on and so forth. Maybe one of the best pieces of advice I received a while ago is if you don't define your values, somebody else will define them for you. And that's not what you want. No, that's solid. That's solid advice. Um, You know, I want to get into kind of, you know, the future and all of the exciting things that are coming down the pipeline for Gremlin and, you know, sort, sort of your insights on this space. But, you know, one thing I'll just ask, and um, similar to a question we talked about earlier is, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, no doubt there's been trials and tribulations that you've had to go through, you know, with Gremlin. But, you know, what have been some of the um, the biggest lessons you've learned along the way? Again, just one or two insights for tech founders. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a fantastic question. And I've been asked this question plenty of times and I give different answers depending on the day of the week or whatever it is. But <laughs> Solid, yeah. I think right now, I think some of the advice I would give is likely around bringing in very high leverage uh, leaders early on in the company. I think oftentimes, you know, you can, especially when you're a small company, you end up, you know, getting some player coaches, some folks that could 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 level up at some point in time. And look, it's hard to attract, you know, very seasoned executives, very seasoned leaders. But if you have the opportunity and you can start looking for those earlier on, I think it it helps to it just helps to build out those functions a little bit more quickly. I think there's this kind of ties into the second second piece of advice I'll give, but like there's just there's no there's no substitute for experience. That's really all there is to it. Um, you know, I I I work with Plato now as a, a mentor, and I think one of the things I we wrote up. I was working with one of their their teams to write up just uh, you know something that occurred to me recently, and it's really thinking about okay, what are you uniquely good at, and what do you uniquely enjoy. And how can you use those to contribute to the company? And if that means that maybe, you know, managerial ship is not your jam, go find somebody whose it is. Go figure it out. Make sure you bring somebody in. I was talking to one of my mentees the other day and she's like, so I think I got to learn all this stuff about security. And it was like, 
you could, or you could go find a security expert, somebody who lives and breathes this and, you know, go from there. I think the piece of advice I got that really spurred that thought in my mind was you can grow as quickly as you want to. If your company is successful, you won't be able to grow fast enough. And so it's really being able to put, you know, you can put as many hours in as you as you want, but, you know, being able to find the right folks to fill the right seats on the buses, it's, it's paramount to making a successful business. Yeah, no, that's solid, Forney. So tell us about, you know, your thoughts for the future. Gremlin, you just celebrated, is it your six? Six years. Congratulations. Six years January 26th. So it's been a, it's been a long haul. Yeah. I, I definitely have uh, waxed poetic and gotten a little philosophical, you know, around every, <laughs> every uh, anniversary. Yeah, no doubt. As you, as you rightly should. Well, tell us about some of the things that, you know, tell us about the company's future, the things that you're planning for this year, if you would. And, um, you know, it's a fascinating space and obviously a lot of demand for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll be a little bit more broad if that's okay. I think really the future of Gremlin, I think the future of the space is really more reliability focused as a whole. You know, we started this conversation with chaos engineering and that that's, you know, you got to dance with the one who brung you. I think that's absolutely accurate in terms of where a lot of the focus has been. Chaos engineering has, has been very popular and very powerful, but I think it's just one tool in the toolbox. I think there's a lot of integrations we can do with different companies. There's a lot of different companies in tangential spaces that we can work together with to build a more holistic picture of reliability. Because reliability is not just let's go create a little chaos. It's not just let's do some performance testing. It's not just, you know, let's make sure we have monitoring. It's it's some kind of concoction collaboration of all of these things. And it looks slightly different for every company, depending on the technologies, the team you have, you know, that sort of thing. So I think starting to venture out into uh, a little bit of deeper waters, a little bit of a bigger pool in terms of reliability is is likely the future, not just for us, but for, for the space as a whole. Yeah, no, that's solid. Well, Forney, I've loved our conversation today, and I would love to point listeners in your direction. So obviously, I'll include a link to the Gremlin website, but you know, where are the best places to you know keep up with you and the great work you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So unfortunately, I'm a bit of a Luddite in terms of uh, social media. So LinkedIn is probably the best uh, or GitHub if you're an engineer and you want to see uh, see what's going on. So my uh, my username is Matt Forney, just about everywhere. So y'all should be able to find me pretty easily. But the Gremlin website, you know, we're, we're hiring. So go check out gremlin.com slash careers uh, and come help us build a more reliable internet. Oh, I love that. Well, we'll include links to all of that in the description of this episode. Matthew Forniseri, thanks again for coming on Leaders of B2B. Noah, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.